you'll take your Bibles, please open them to the book of Hebrews in the sixth chapter. And we come this morning to Hebrews chapter six. If you'll join me in standing as we read, please. Hebrews chapter 6. Begin reading again at verse 13. When God made a promise to Abraham because he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself, saying, Surely blessing I will bless you, and multiplying I will multiply. So after he had patiently endured, he obtained the promise. For men indeed swear by the greater, and an oath for confirmation is to them an end of all dispute. Thus God, determining to show more abundantly to the heirs of promise the immutability of his counsel, confirmed it by an oath, that by two immutable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we might have a strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold of the hope set before us. This hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, in which enters the presence behind the veil, where the forerunner has entered for us, even Jesus, having become a high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. Father, we ask that you give to us grace, peace, mercy, and understanding. We pray, God, that as we enter this time of study of your word and worship through the word, that we would be found faithful to have open hearts, that we would be found faithful to heed your voice, to hear your voice, God, and to let it impact the way that we live our lives. God, I pray that in this day, each of us would examine our own tendencies towards truth or towards lies and help us speak truth one to another, help us speak truth to others around us, and help us engage with the world around us, always, being examples of what it is to live for Christ. We ask all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. It should come as no surprise to hear me say that we live in a time when honesty is rare. And when truth is under attack and the value of a man's word is less than zero. Affirmations are dismissed out of hand because the hearer has no expectation of anyone speaking the truth. And it has infected our entire culture with a deep and deadly miasma. A creeping rot of deceit and falsehood. It's not an accident that Jesus called the devil the father of lies. In John 8, 44, he said, You are of your father the devil, and the desires of your father you want to do. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he speaks, he speaks a lot. He speaks from his own resources, for he is a liar and a father of it. And this is truly the flavor of our culture. Sadly, in many ways, it has become the flavor of the church as well. So I want to think with you this morning about what it means that honesty has been degraded, and what it means that God gave a promise with an oath, and what it means for us to deal with oaths and promises and speaking truth and how God calls us to live this out. 
So I want to start with you, first of all, just kind of thinking about the consequences of systemic dishonesty. Our land has been deeply diseased by a lack of regard for truth. So much so that common observable biology, we are told, is no longer true, and lies should be accepted as truth because a person feels a certain way. Then when they feel a different way tomorrow, we're supposed to accept that as well because truth has no meaning. This is the culture in which we live. It's a byword that politicians are thieves, liars, hypocrites, and extortioners. Sadly, it's also a byword that preachers are thieves, liars, hypocrites, and extortioners. And because of a lack of truthfulness in our culture, our most common vows and agreements and relationships have been tainted by distrust. Marriages in the world almost universally require an ironclad prenuptial agreement. Just think this through. You're about to take a vow till death be part, and you are going to make the other party sign a document telling them how you're going to behave when you are divorced. That's what a prenuptial agreement is. You can wrap it up in any other language you want, but what it is is an intent to divorce. And yet you're going to stand before God and witnesses and make a promise that you're going to keep until you're dead. These things don't sit together well. They don't live together in any form of decency or understanding. Employers require non-disclosure agreements to even begin speaking to a potential employee out of fear of the fact that the man who's coming to you for a job is not really looking for a job, but looking to steal your secrets. This is the world in which we live. Legal threats and expulsions are threatened at universities and even high schools to combat epidemic cheating when a simple code of conduct used to be sufficient. It used to be enough to simply say, this is how we do things at this school, and everybody sort of followed along. There's literally no sphere of life wherein contracts are not expected to force the other party to simply honor their word. Now this creeps into our lives in all sorts of unexpected ways. It creeps in in small ways. People have no respect for their own word to other people. They have no respect for the time of others. We say we're going to be someplace. We're not there. We just expect people to take us and go, oh, it's okay, it's not a problem. And believe me, I struggle with this myself. So I don't want anybody later on to beat me up and say, you're a hypocrite. Full disclosure, I have a hard time being on time. But let me be honest with you. It's disrespect. It's a disrespectful thing to tell somebody you're going to be someplace at a time and then not do it. It's something that we need to pay attention to. It's something that God calls us to do. And it's connected to our inherent honesty. If I say I'm going to do something, then I should be willing to do whatever it takes to make that happen. Amen? This is how we should view our word. It's how we as followers of Christ should view our own testimony with the people that we are around. Agreements are broken as a matter of course. Well, why didn't you do what you said you wanted to do? Well, I didn't want to. Or I forgot. Or I, I just didn't. I, I don't know. I don't have a reason. I just didn't. I didn't do it. This is a normal, everyday occurrence, and it is systemic. Promises are made and broken in every relationship and every possible connection. And the social contract that used to define civility and responsibility has been abandoned by entire generations. There's just no regard for how your actions or involvement affect the people around you. 
Now, I want to I want to try and stay focused here. I could go off on a rant and, and waste all of our time, so I don't want to do that because we have a social contract around the Word of God, which says, I come to you with the truth of God's Word, not with my rants. So let me help you see the connection here just a little bit. The social contract that binds us together says, I agree I'm going to behave in a certain way, and you agree you're going to behave in a certain way. And with that come the bounds of civility that allow us to function together even though we are not the same people and we don't always have the same worldview. That is an unwritten expectation that has helped this nation be a nation for hundreds of years. And in the last 20 or 30 years, it has become so degraded, it is no longer recognizable. People have no respect for others because they have no respect for themselves. Because they have been taught by a system that hates them that they are nothing more than evolved pond sludge. That they have no value and no purpose other than what they can take from somebody else. This is the culture in which we live. And make no mistake about it, beloved. The fault for it lies with the church, for we abandoned the truth first. We stepped away from it, and we agreed that it was more important to chase our wants than God's word. This is the problem that the church has brought to the world, and as a result of it, we, the church, are responsible to help bring the solution to the world. And it begins with us understanding that at the core of all of it, we must be willing to be honest with ourselves and honest with one another. We must say, this is what is, this is what is not, this is what's happening, this is not what's happening, this is the truth. And we must be able to know that having been given the truth by somebody, it is the truth. It doesn't just stop at our general interactions. It goes on to a government doing its best to try and forgive student loans when the money was taken out in good faith, spent in whatever manner possible, and the people that lent it needed it back. <laughs> but we're just going to forgive it because now I, I don't have the money that I thought I was going to make. Or is it something deeper? It's a general reality that we don't value our own promises. And the simple expectation of an employee simply showing up for work. Never mind on time. Just showing up. When Taco Bell can't be open past 8 o'clock at night, there's a problem. Amen? Amen. See, truth is a foreign concept. It's something that we don't really grasp. But it's something that we need to get our heads around. Because if we're going to engage with the God who is truth, we need to know what truth is. Amen? Amen. We need to recognize that when God says this is true, it's not open for debate. It's not open for us to say, I don't agree with you, God. Therefore, I'm going to write my own book. We can try, and people are trying. But in the end, they will stand before the God who waits for the day, and they will give an account for their evil. And then they will be banished from His presence for all of eternity, and they will be cast into hell, where they will be tormented by the righteous wrath of God forever and forever. This is not a small thing. And it begins and ends in the ground of truth. If this is the world in which we live, and this is the world who has rules by which we must live, established by a God to whom we must give an account, 
Does it not stand to reason that we might want to reality check ourselves and say this is what's real and this is not what's real? Should we not engage with the question with some honest heart? Do we not expect people to do so? Well, if we're going to expect them to do so, should we not also? So let's think about what God gives us here in Hebrews. Let's come back to Hebrews chapter 6, verse 16. I just want to look at one verse. Because it raised some questions. Maybe they're already brewing in your mind. Maybe I'll have to raise them for you. And go, oh yeah, that's what I was going to ask. Verse 16 says, For men indeed swear by the greater, and an oath for confirmation is for them an end of all dispute. Now what this is referencing is the fact that God gave an oath to Abraham. And in giving his oath to Abraham, the scripture tells us he swore by himself. For there is none greater. And then verse 16 tells us that the process of that is that if I'm going to give an oath, if I'm going to swear, I must swear by something greater than myself to bind me to that oath. That's the idea that's been presented, and that's what's been given to us here in verse 16. So we have to ask the question, God being God, by whom does he swear who is greater than himself? Scripture says there is none. So since there was none by whom he could swear greater than himself, he swore how? By himself. He said, I swear by my own name. He invoked his own name. He invoked his own person. He invoked his own power, his own presence, his own nature. And he said, I promise you by the reality of who I am that these things that I'm telling you are true. Now there's something for us to see in this. Because when somebody who is by nature evil, vile, and untruthful swears, they swear by God, and we are supposed to take them at their word. Amen? Maybe you do, maybe you don't, but that's the intention. They give the vow, we're supposed to take them at their word. Should it not be even more believable for us when God, who is truth itself, swears by himself? Do we not then believe him and take him at his word and believe that what he promised he's actually going to do? See, our engagement with God begins and ends at the ground of whether or not we believe what he says. That's all of it. That is the whole game. You can do nothing to affect your salvation. You can do nothing to earn his favor. You can do nothing to pay for your sin. You can do nothing to make your sin less than it's already been. And honestly, if you're not awake to this yet, You can do nothing to keep yourself from sinning tomorrow. You are in the hand of God and you take him at his word or you are adrift. The entirety of our faith rests on God being true. Amen. Everything revolves around this issue. Is God truthful? Is God true? Is God real? Is God everything that he says he is? This is the heart and soul of it. So when God himself swears by his own nature that what he says is true, it's something that we need to take seriously. Now here's the part that's really beautiful in this. Did God need to swear in order for what he intended to do to be made true? No, he just intends it. He does it. He speaks things into being and they are. He said, let there be light and light was invented. Not the sun, moon, and stars, That was four days later. The concept of light. 
chew on that for a while. That's something to wrap your head around. Our God is a God of infinite power, beauty, glory, and holiness. He did not need to give an oath to Abraham. But he did. Why? Well, I contend that him giving the oath was an act of beautiful, wondrous condescension. He, swooped, he stooped to swear to us. Because he owes us no such assurance. Amen? God simply says, this is what I say. That's all there is to it. That he doesn't owe us any explanation. He doesn't owe us any assurance. He doesn't owe us taking us by the hand and leading us gently to himself. He doesn't owe us any of these things. But in great and gracious and glorious condescension, he stooped to give assurance. He doesn't owe us gentle promises to soothe away our little childish fears. He doesn't owe us anything like this. He owes us no extraordinary means by which we are to understand and believe Him. And yet, here He takes on the most human-like garb and swears by Himself, swears by the power of His own name, that what He promises is true. Beloved, understand this. A God who does such things is far more beautiful than you can comprehend. A God who does such things is far more gracious then you have any ability to, to get your head around it. He didn't owe this. This was mercy bringing mercy. This was grace bringing grace. This was glory bringing the magnificence of God into a time and a place where Abraham could relate to him. And don't lose sight of the fact that he didn't stop with this. Because thousands of years later, God put on flesh and entered into humankind and became a man forever altering the nature of the second person of the Godhead. And in so doing, He communicates to us the truth of who God is in the most powerful and profound way imaginable. So much so that Jesus told Philip, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. Just think about that. Think about what it means that we serve a God who condescends to communicate with us. Does He owe us a Bible that gives us direction? No. Does He owe us the promise that His Word has been safely guarded throughout millennia that we might have it? No. Does He owe us the kindness and gentleness of it being translated into a language that we can speak and understand? Should He not say to us, I gave it to you in Greek, therefore learn Greek. Okay, I can do that, but don't ask me to learn Hebrew, it's backwards! No, He doesn't do that to us. And neither does He demand that we speak it only in Kenneth Jameth. Read it if you want. But if you don't, don't. God gives us His Word so that we can communicate with Him, so that we can understand His Word. And He gives it to us in language that we get. And He does it because He's condescending to reveal Himself to us and do not ever for one moment lose sight of the fact that He did not owe that to you. 
gives it in grace. He gives it in mercy. He gives it in the fact that He is a God who loves. It staggers the mind. It absolutely staggers the mind. Now, this brings us to a point that we need to engage with. God taking oaths. Didn't Jesus tell us not to swear? I know you guys were thinking it. It's okay, we have an answer. We can look at the scripture and we can recognize the fact that contextually what Jesus told us is not a simple prohibition against swearing. So turn with me to Matthew chapter 5. Remember that the first rule of hermeneutics is context, context, context. And the second rule is that Scripture is its own best interpreter. So we're going to take the Scripture and we're going to allow the Scripture to speak to us and give us light to understand. So Matthew chapter 5, starting at verse 33. Again, you have heard it was said to those of old, You shall not swear falsely, but shall perform your oaths to the Lord. But I say to you, do not swear at all, neither by heaven, for it is God's throne, nor by the earth, for it is his footstool, nor by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Nor shall you swear by your head, because you cannot make one hair white or black. But let your yes be yes, and your no be no. For whatever is more than these is from the evil. So, what Jesus was dealing with in the Sermon on the Mount is many of the things that the Pharisees had added to the law of God. For instance, he blasted them about, you say that you have, have given yourself permission to swear by the gold of the altar and then it's bound, but if you swear by the altar itself, it's not bound, that what you have promised and you owe to your family, you can say, I give it to God and therefore you can keep it because you don't owe it to them anymore. There was a lot of these little rules and regulations the Pharisees had dreamt up, and one of them had to do with oaths. And actually, it was more than one, a collection of them. But basically, the upshot of it is, the Pharisees taught that taking an oath by God is to violate the third commandment. And we'll, we'll deal with that question in just a minute. But, since I still have to take oaths, I'm not going to take them by God's name. Instead, I'm going to swear by heaven, or I'm going to swear by earth or I'm going to swear by the holy city Jerusalem, or I'm going to swear by my head, or I'm going to swear by this, or I'm going to swear by that. And those things are the specifics that Jesus himself here clearly tells us, don't, don't swear by those things. Because you are profaning them, and, and you are powerless to do anything with them. And he goes on to say, let your yes be yes, your no be no. Because the Pharisees had engaged in the practice of swearing by these things as a commonplace for every single thing they affirmed. I promise you by my head, I'll be there at 8 o'clock in the morning. Okay. 8.30 shows up. Well, my head's still here, so I guess it's okay. I don't know. The, the, the whole idea was that their, their use of vows and promises had expanded to the point where they were untrustworthy as a rule. And Jesus is telling them, do not live that way. Do not speak that way. Do not engage in this. They understand that if they can twist away from the heart of the commandment, they give themselves free reign to do whatever they want to do. 
Now, this is very common in their day, and sadly, it's common in our day as well. Perhaps no place is it more common than in our observance or lack thereof of the Lord's day. We will make for ourselves excuses and twist out of the law of God regarding the Sabbath with everything in our power, doing all that we can, making every possible excuse for the things that we want to do. Now, please do not hear this as me throwing rocks because I am guilty of it as well. But it's something that we need to be aware of. And it's something that we need to recognize in ourselves and ask ourselves the question, is my behavior honoring my God? Because in the end, God calls us to engage with Him with absolute honesty. He calls us to engage with Him with, with a determination to do what He tells us to do regardless. And it's easy for us to throw rocks at the Pharisees for all their multitude laws while we have our own. It's something to be aware of. Something we need to check our own hearts about. All right. Um, so, is this something that that absolutely Jesus is forbidding us taking oaths in the name of God? Because He doesn't specify that. So, let's look at what the rest of the Scripture has to say about the question. Turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter six, please. Deuteronomy chapter six. We're going to start reading in verse 10. And read through verse 15. So it shall be when the Lord your God brings you into the land which he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give you large and beautiful cities which you did not build, houses full of all good things which you did not fill, Hewn out wells which you did not dig, vineyards and olive trees which you did not plant. When you have eaten and are full, then beware lest you forget the Lord who brought you up out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage. You shall fear the Lord your God and serve him, and shall take oaths in his name. You shall not go after other gods, the gods of the peoples who are all around you, for the Lord your God is a jealous God among you, lest the anger of the Lord your God be aroused against you and destroy you from the face of the earth. So what is God saying here in Deuteronomy? He's saying, look, you are my people, and when you are called upon to take an oath, the name in which you take it is mine. Because nobody else has the power or the authority to safeguard or judge your faithfulness to your vow. You take them in my name because you are my people. This is the word of God to us. This is what God says we are supposed to be. So, taking of oaths is lawful and it's occasionally needed when there is no way that somebody else can know the truth of a heart. We take an oath. We, we give our testimony. We vow to speak the truth. When there's no evidence to clearly support or clearly refute the claim. Or when the matter is deeply and profoundly serious. Um... When we take oaths, there are two basic requirements for the one taking the oath. First of all, that the oath taker be of sound mind and discernment to understand what he swears and the consequences of doing so falsely. So if God says, you are my people and you will take oaths in my name, it doesn't mean that a little child who doesn't understand that he's invoking the name of God to hold him liable and accountable for his lies should take those oaths. These are, these are serious things. And that's the other part of it, is that we need to recognize 
that we have the power to both make it good and we have the power to understand that we are responsible if we don't. So some, some basic issues about the oath itself. First of all, it's assumed that the things sworn true be true. That they be true logically, they be true morally, that they be actually true insofar as the swearer knows. And that the oath be possible. It would be very foolish of me to say to you, I swear to you in the name of God that I will fly tomorrow without an airplane. Right? It's not, I mean, maybe I could dream up some way to do it, but you, you take my meaning. Oaths need to be just and lawful. In short, they need to be righteous. In Jeremiah chapter 4, verse 2 says, You shall swear the Lord lives. In truth, in judgment, in righteousness, the nations shall bless themselves in him, and in him they shall glory. It's also important that the matter be weighty, with no other recourse available. For the taking of an oath, we approach the highest judge. The oath is, in fact, an appeal made to the final arbiter of truth. It is an appeal to God, asking him to make the truth known and to undertake the role of the avenger if falsehood is present. This is why this is not a small matter. This is why you must be mentally stable and capable of understanding what you're doing. Because when you take an oath in God's name, what you're saying is, God, this is true, and if it's not true, then it's your responsibility to bring vengeance upon me for my lie. You've got to ask yourself a question right here in the middle of this. Do we deal with truth on terms like that in this culture at all? Do we believe that truth and lies are punishable by God? Or do we think that truth and lies are just casual things that happen in the course of a day's activities? <coughs> when we take an oath, we're invoking the name of God to hold us accountable for what we say. We are invoking the name of God to hold us accountable for the truth of the vow that we are making. And we are binding Him by His own nature to make certain that what is done ends up being right. It should be entered into deliberately and reverently, for we are invoking His active participation in the resolution of the matter. And it should also be entered into with religious understanding, piously lifting our hands and hearts to heaven, asking God to make the truth plain to everybody. This is what God is getting at in Deuteronomy when he says, you will swear by my name. You're calling me to have a part in your agreement. You're calling me to engage with you in your interaction between these two people. You are calling me to make certain that what is said and what is done is exactly accurately true. So when we take an oath in God's name, this is not a small matter. This is not a minor thing. And God is one who will absolutely do his part. It becomes a dangerous thing to enter into it lightly. Because we make God the final judge of the matter. Now he is already. But we invoke upon ourselves the acknowledgement and the consequence of stating that he is. We are appealing to his omniscience. Saying, Lord, you know the truth. You know all things past all things present and all things future. And I am asking you by the power and the nature of who you are to make certain that what I am saying is true. And if it's wrong, I'm asking you to bring that out. We are invoking him as omniscient God. 
We're also invoking him as omnipotent God and judge and asking him to absolutely justly avenge all who swear falsely. This is what's on the table. So it stands to reason that this is not something that we want to do half-heartedly. Because God is able and he is just to avenge those who have been harmed in secret. Those who have not known justice through the perversion of the judicial system or other legislative skullduggery. God knows the truth. Amen. And God will one day avenge the truth. And that message is one that we as the people of God need to speak plainly. But hear me carefully. It's a message that we as the people of God cannot speak plainly if we ourselves do not speak honestly. If we are a people who are racked with, with evil tongues and lies and deceit and false oaths and false promises and we're light about everything that we do and everything that we say, then when we tell people that God is the final arbiter of truth and that he will avenge righteousness and avenge truth, what do you think their response is going to be? You don't believe it. Why should I? Amen? Do we understand God is sincerely concerned with the honesty of his people. So an oath is an end to differences or disputes, for we call God to settle the oath. We call God to settle the matter. We call God to say, this is true, this is not, and we relinquish final control into his hands to do what is. Now that leaves a responsibility for the person who is giving the oath. We give the oath, and we say, I am telling you the truth and the entire truth. Our legal system says the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. So if you grew up watching Perry Mason, you heard those words a lot. The truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. I don't know if they use it anymore now. They may not. <laughs> I would be surprised if they did. But when we take an oath and we call God to swear to it, or we, we swear by God's name and invoke him into it, that's exactly what we're promising to give. We're promising to give the truth in its totality, without any exception, without any hindrance, without any lying, without any prevarication or any sidewinding or any of those other things. We are calling upon God to say, what you have said is absolutely true insofar as you understand it. Now, it's important that you understand that sometimes you can be honest and sincerely wrong. That's okay. That happens. But if you enter into an oath like this and you're deliberately lying, what you're doing is saying, God, call me out and prove this that I'm wrong. Shame me, fix me, break me, make me yours, correct what's wrong in me. That's really what you're asking for. And God is omnipotent and able to do it. Now as a corollary for that, the one who is sworn to is called to accept the matter as settled. If God is the, the one who is invoked here, do you believe that God can make it right? Then let it go. Be done with it. This is all wrapped up in how we live as the church. If there's a problem, the, the church should not be taking things with other members to court. If there's a problem, the church should be resolving the problems within the bounds of the body. There's a problem. God says to us, do you not know you will judge angels? How are you not able to judge even the simplest things? 
God calls us to engage with this because it impacts all of our lives. The church, it's a different animal, guys. It is not like the world. And it doesn't function like the world. And it doesn't function according to the world's law. It functions according to God's law. Or it's just the world. Amen. That's all it is. You can call it a church. But if it just looks like the world and acts like the world and smells like the world and thinks like the world, it's not a church. Take the sign off. Call it something else. But if you're going to be the church of God, then you are called to live according to His law and according to His will and according to His precepts. And foundational among them is the precept of absolute honesty. We have to be willing to at least engage in this. We have to be willing to at least say, this is the target. I want to be faithful. I want to be true. I want to be somebody who honors God by the way that I talk. And I want to do this because God calls us to walk in truth. And we recognize that false oaths are deep rot. Occasionally, as a carpenter, I would be called upon to repair something the termites have eaten. And occasionally, as a carpenter, I will have to look at somebody and say, yeah, no, ain't going to happen. We're tearing it down and starting over. Because the termites have gotten in too deep. And it was hidden for a long time. But in the end, what they attacked is the structure that supports everything. Beloved, hear me very carefully. Dishonesty and false oaths are deep rot. They are termites that undermine everything that you try to do. They will corrode every aspect of your life. Swearing by anything but God is the first issue that needs to be addressed. It robs him of his dignity in your eyes and it testifies of our divided hearts. It is condemning and, and truthfully confessing that we place more trust in swearing by our mothers, be they living or dead, than we do by swearing by God. Just think about that in this culture. Right? Somebody says something, do you swear? Oh, I swear to God. No, but do you swear on your mama's life? Like that's bigger? I love my mother, but she's not bigger than God. But our culture has turned it around so that that seems to be the biggest oath that a person can make. We've got to ask the question, what have we done to stop this slide? Or have we participated in it? Have we engaged in that kind of language with people? The truth is, pagans swear by false gods. Papists swear by false teaching about God and thus by a false god. They swear by saints, they swear by tradition. Profane persons swear in all manner of things and intend none of them. And it's been my experience over the course of my lifetime that you can find all of those types of people all wearing the name of Christian and sitting in Baptist churches daily. It ought not to be so. It ought not to be us. For we are called to be the people of God. We are called to be different. Swearing to things that are false or unlawful constitutes a false oath, and it is deeply cankerous to your soul. It is deeply rottening to your being, and it will hurt you in the end. So if you are in the habit of giving your oath to things that are not true, I would suggest that you cease. 
swearing falsely or lying in your oaths. A slightly different emphasis here. The thing that you're testing to may be true, but you have no intention of making it true in your life. That's lying in your oath. You want to make sure that what you're saying to people about what you're going to do and what you're going to be and how you're going to engage is absolutely honest. Just speak the truth. Bear the consequences of your decisions and speak the truth. At the very least, even if your decision is wrong, you're not going to be in trouble for lying about it as well. Amen? Just speak the truth. Forbidding oaths altogether. Now, this is an interesting thing. There are huge tracts of the church that have done this. Um, the Anabaptists were famous for it, and many Baptists that I know believe that you shouldn't swear at all under any means whatsoever. But that's a contradiction of Scripture. We need to be careful about it. We need to be earnest about it. But we just read in Deuteronomy, you will swear by the Lord's name. We, we, we see this clearly. So it contradicts Scripture, and it must not be done. And while the issue is indeed complicated, it can be unraveled and understood with a little bit of reflection and allowing Scripture to be its own interpreter. Now, I don't say that you ought to be swearing constantly, because when you say you cannot swear at all, you are robbing yourself of one of the chief tools that is sort of an ultimate go-to. I mean, this is true. I can't prove it to you, but it's real. You can swear to things that are earnest and things that are real, but it needs to be something that is kind of kept in reserve until it's needed. This is what's really being gotten at by James when he says, let your yes be yes and your no be no. Because in the end, if we swear constantly or rashly, it cheapens the matter. It reduces its power to do what it's intended to do, and it often involves taking the name of God in vain. Um, and, and Scripture tells us that the land will mourn because of it. Look at Hosea chapter 4. Hosea chapter 4 and verses 2 and 3 tell us this. By swearing and lying, killing and stealing and committing adultery, they break all restraint of bloodshed upon bloodshed. Therefore the land will mourn. And everyone who dwells there will waste away the beasts of the field, the birds of the air, and the fish of the sea will be taken away. Now, it's interesting to me and sad to me that these things are coupled together. Swearing, lying, healing, killing, stealing, committing adultery, bloodshed upon bloodshed. In other words, when God looks at these things, there's not really a distinction. They're all the same sin. It's all the same heart that wants what it wants, regardless of the cost and regardless of who it hurts. God calls us to live beyond this and to live better than this. And ultimately, God calls us to honor truth. Look, at the bottom of all of this is this fact. We are saved by the one who is the truth. Amen. Amen? We're saved by the truth himself. It's a funny way to say it, but it's true. We're saved by Jesus Christ, who is truth. And we are owned by the one who is the truth. Because salvation is a purchase. You are not your own. You are bought with a price, the scripture tells us. You have been purchased by the blood of Christ. You have been redeemed by the Lamb of God. You have been bought for His pleasure. And you are owned for His glory. And He is the truth. So allowing lies to stand uncontested is being complicit in the false oaths. And it is being 
rebellious towards your Lord. It is an offense against the one who saved you. It is an offense against the one who bought you with his own blood. Living a life that is marked out by truthfulness is required of us. Now, while oaths and vows may occasionally be required by circumstance, they are not to be the norm. That's why Jesus went on in the passage of in Matthew to say, let your yes be yes, let your no be no, whatever else is more than these is from the evil. Or in James chapter 5, verse 12, Above all, my brethren, do not swear, either by heaven or by earth or with any other oath, but let your yes be yes, your no be no, lest you fall into judgment. So what this is telling us is that while we are permitted to use oaths and occasionally even commanded to take oaths, so just a very practical reality, if you're drugged into court and they tell you to swear by God to take your oath, then swear by God to take your oath and tell the truth. Okay? Taking oaths is not to be the normal practice of our lives. We are to be a people who say what we say, mean what we say, and do what we promise. Period. That should be the standard of our lives. That should be how we try to live out this existence. You're going to mess up, and when you mess up, you go to the person that you made the promise to, and you sort it out. You do business, and you say, look, I'm sorry, I messed up, I made a promise, I failed. Please forgive me. It, it's really that simple. <laughs> there's no need to lie and make promises that aren't true, and there's no need to lie about it after you fail. Just go and speak the truth. Become that person. And what you will find, then, is that when you speak to somebody about something, they're going to take you at your word. Because you've proven to them over time that what you say you mean and you are a person whose word can be trusted. It's just remarkable to me that this is such a foreign concept here in this land. This land used to be famous for a man's word being his bond. And a handshake was better than a signature because most of them couldn't write anyway. <laughs> They said what they meant, and they did what they said. Beloved, that should be us. Even if the rest of the culture is, is on its way to perdition, that should be us. That should be the people of God. We just speak what is true, and we do what we say. Now, one little caveat. We all know that God is bigger than our plans. Amen? Can God disrupt your plans? Absolutely. Does God often disrupt your plans? I know He does mine. It happens. It happens a lot. So we need to kind of think about that in how we speak. Understand that God has power and authority to override your intentions and let your speech reflect that reality. Look at me at James chapter 4. James chapter 4, starting at verse 13. Come now. You who say, today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a city, spend a year there, buy and sell, and make a profit. Whereas, you do not know what will happen tomorrow, for what is your life? It's even a vapor that appears for a little time and then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we shall live and do this or that. But now you boast in your arrogance, and all such boasting is evil. Therefore, to him who knows to do good and does not do it, to him it is 
sin. The specific of that last statement is in this context. Be honest about your intentions. It is my intention to go and do this if the Lord wills. Now I would say, don't invoke Lord willing if you don't have any intention of doing it. Amen? In other words, if you say, Lord willing, you're saying, my intention is to do this if the Lord allows it. That's the idea behind it. Not, well, if God convinces me to do it, I'll do it. <laughs> Equally true, but not truthful. You take my meaning? Build into your language, and Gene is excellent at this. He uses this statement all the time. If the Lord is willing, then that will happen. It's a good practice for us. Build that into your language. Let it be that you are always conscious of the fact that God has the right and the power to override your plans. This even applies in the question of our oaths. I will do this if God permits. And it is my intention and I swear to you by the name of God that this is the truth. But we have to hold very clearly in our minds the reality that the one by whom we are swearing is bigger even than our oaths. He is God. And he will exercise his rights as such according to his pleasure and according to his purpose. The challenge for us is to kind of fashion this into a way of living. We should not ever be a person whose trustworthiness is questionable. We should not ever be a person who, who, when we say something to somebody, they have the slightest doubt that what we're saying to them is true. It should always be taken at faith that what we say is our intention, and it is absolutely true, unless we are prevented by something far beyond our ability. That should just be known among us. That should be the very character and flavor of our lives. Because, <coughs> excuse me, if you live a life that requires you to give an oath for anybody to take anything that you say seriously, you're going to undo every word that you ever speak about the gospel. Because God is a God who has to be trusted. And if they can't trust his servants, how will they believe that they can trust him? I, I can't express strongly enough how important this is. That we have to be a people whose very veracity is a synonym for our name. Because that's the God that we serve. He is truth. And his name is truth. And his ways are truth. The whole of our lives are to be an adornment to the gospel. We are giving testimony about the nature and the glory and the person and the power of God. We are giving testimony about the nature and the glory and the person and the power of his son, Jesus Christ. And our lives should adorn that message with beauty and, and truthfulness and support and, and give glorious examples of just how good our God is. 
But if we're telling people to trust God while we ourselves remain untrustworthy, our lives are not an adornment of the gospel, but a detriment. We become the stumbling block, which is, in my mind, far worse than just placing one in front of somebody. We actually are that stumbling block if we're not speaking truthfully. At the heart of it is this. God forgives. God is bigger. God is greater. God is gracious. And if you look back over the course of your life and you say, I have never gotten this right in the course of my entire existence, God is bigger. If you look back over the course of your life and you say, I've mostly done this, but I've messed up, God is bigger. And if you're a person who, by God's grace and mercy, has made this the standard of their life, make sure you take time to thank Him for it. Because you are definitely an outlier in this culture. Give praise to Him for what belongs to Him. And fly to Him for the mercy that you need to satisfy what he calls you to be. Let's pray. Father, I ask that you give to us grace. And Lord, this is hard things for us to do. Hard things for us to do. Hard things for us to engage with. But God, you are a God who is bigger than the hard things we face. Make us faithful. Help us love you. Help us honor you in all we are and all we do. And let truthfulness be the stamp of all we are. Christ, we ask in the name of Jesus for his glory. Amen.